wow, thank you for taking a moment to listen to the Nova Church podcast. Our goal is to create a place where anybody can encounter God. If you want to share your story with us about how Nova Church has helped you in any way, or if you want to support the ministry financially so we can keep sharing messages like this one, please donate at novachurch.tv. Thank you once again for spending a few minutes with us. Our prayers that you will be encouraged and inspired by today's podcast. There was once a day where once upon a time there was no Democrats, there were no Republicans, there was no Constitution, there was no civil liberty the way we view civil liberties, there was no denominations, there was no Baptists, and there was no Nazarene, and There was no Pentecostal, and there was no Assemblies of God. There was just Rome. And Rome was a republic that morphed, transitioned into an empire under the leadership and the rule of Caesar Augustus. And while Caesar would be emperor... There was a Jewish baby who was born in Bethlehem whose fame and renown would one day eclipse this Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And his fame and renown would soon eclipse every Roman emperor to ever live. And this little Jewish baby who was born in Bethlehem would eclipse every leader to ever walk on the face of the planet. And today as we wrap up this series, I want to go to a passage of scripture, a narrative in scripture. This is not a Bible study. This is a reflection of what happened around seven to eight weeks after the crucifixion. This is not two years after the crucifixion, 20 years after the crucifixion. This was not 120 years. This was seven to eight weeks after Jesus was killed, crucified, buried, and rose again. And soon after Jesus rose from the grave, there would be these groups, these huddles of Jesus followers. And they would gather under trees and in temples and in courts. And these groups would be full of farmers, merchants, men, women, children, masters, slaves, Greeks, Jews, Gentiles, Romans, and soldiers. And they would gather on the first day of every week, and they would sing a hymn to Jesus, and they would renew their vow to follow Jesus. And they would look at each other in the eye and tell them that they can make it, that what they believe in is true. And they didn't believe that God was stone. They believed that God was spirit. 
And they believe that every person they would see in their entire life would have intrinsic value, not assigned value. And they believed that animal sacrifice, that the days of animal sacrifice are over. And just like Jesus was, they were betrayed by their friends. They too were killed. They too were mocked by their own people because they believed in something that they didn't even know might happen or might be successful. That was their version of Christianity. As we wrap up this series, I want to ask the question, what will the generations to come, what will our once upon a time story be when they talk about our generation of Christianity? When they talk about how we had faith? How will your kids talk about you Will they say that you're a tough Christian? Will they say that you always had faith? Will they say that you just went to church, but then during the week it was like church never existed? What will our great-grandkids say about our follow of Jesus? What the world learned about Christianity is they weren't turned off by it. They didn't lean away from it, but in fact, Jesus' followers in the first century were so contagious, were so positive, were so joyful, were so compassionate, that even people who disagreed with them leaned in and didn't lean away. I wonder what people are going to say about our generation of Christianity. Our generation of believing in Jesus, our generation of worshiping God, it is our job to steward the faith while we are alive. The same faith that these first, centuries, that these first century believers lived and died for. I wonder what our grandkids are going to say about us. I want to talk about a narrative in Acts chapter 4 and kind of break it down and give you the clearest picture I can. And if, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to Jesus, you're going to quickly fall in love with the book of Acts. The book of Acts is my favorite chapter. How many of you love the book of Acts? I love the book of Acts. What is the book of Acts? You have the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He was an investigator. He asked a lot of questions. What he did is as soon as Jesus was crucified, he began to ask a ton of questions to a ton of people. He interviewed everybody that was in this movement called The Way. It wasn't even Christianity yet. And that, came, that became the book of Acts. And he followed Paul around the Mediterranean Rim as he planted churches and uh, went through persecution Luke interviewed and asked all these questions, and he came up with this document that we now have called the Book of Acts. So today is not a Bible study. Today is we're going to look and we're going to reflect from a written historical document. It's a history book. And see where our faith is. Now, this is a challenging passage of Scripture. 
If you're a Jesus follower, this is going to challenge you, just like the last three weeks have challenged you. But I promise you, at the end of this, you're going to have the tools to grow your faith. Amen? So, Acts chapter 4, are you there? Verse 13. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. Let me do a little backstory. So, Peter and John are Jesus followers. They would have seen Jesus arrested, unjustly tried. He would have been killed. He would have been buried. He would have been resurrected, and they would have had breakfast with him on the beach the day after he rose from the grave. That would give you a little bit of excitement, wouldn't it? So around seven to eight weeks later, they're going to the temple to pray because that's what they did with Jesus. So when Jesus um, ascended into heaven, they were like, well, what do we do? Let's do what Jesus did. So they're, they're heading to the temple. On the way to the temple, there was a man who had been lame from birth for 40 years. I'm going to preach this in a different way next month. I'm super excited. But there was a man who had been lame from birth for 40 years, and he begs them for money. He's asking for donations, and uh, they have no money. And so they said, but we can, we can heal you. So they heal him. He walks up. They begin to walk in the temple. Now, the temple would have been uh, like 40, 50 acres with a wall around it with some building inside of it. And it would have been a big open space. But everyone in the temple would have recognized that the man who's been lame for 40 years um, is now inside the temple and he's walking and he's happy and he's joyful and he's excited and a crowd begins to gather. And they begin to gather around Peter and they begin to gather around John and Peter and John go, this is familiar. This happened with Jesus. Uh, what should we do? What did Jesus do? So Peter was like, Jesus taught. So he began to preach and to teach in the temple and he began to say the name of Jesus. Now, the temple leaders heard this, and they were like, Jesus? Didn't we kill Jesus? I thought Jesus was dead. There would have been rumors of Jesus sightings all the time. Hey, Jesus showed up here. Jesus showed up here. Um, and now the temple leaders, the guys who crucified Jesus, are hearing the name of Jesus in their church, and they begin to investigate. There's a big crowd. They work their way to the middle of the crowd, and Peter and John are now looking eye to eye, the same people who had Jesus killed, the same group that had Jesus crucified is now looking at these two Jesus followers. And they're preaching about a guy they killed two months earlier. You can imagine the tension. You can imagine the, oh no, in the spirit of Peter and John. But they decided to rise above it. See, now they're fearless. Why? Because their teacher, leader, master, and rabbi who they had followed for three years, the group of people that's staring at them killed him, buried him, and then they had breakfast with him on the beach four days later. So you can understand how Peter and John are not scared of the men that they're looking at. So that's where we pick up our story. Peter and John are not talking to a multitude of crowd. They're talking to about 20 religious leaders in the city. And check out this statement. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, there's no salvation in no one else. 
this would have flown in the face of what they believe. He pretty much smacked them and said, you guys are worthless. There's no point to follow you anymore. Now, if you, if you study this, you know that they made their living off of how many people followed them. Because the more following they had, the more people that gave to the church, the more money they could manipulate for their own pockets. So they're sensing some urgency. He says, there is no salvation in no one else. God has given no name, no other name under heaven in which we must be saved. And the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. The one they had killed eight weeks earlier. But since they could not see, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was no, oh, there was nothing the council could say. Verse 15, so they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. So they brought in the council, I think there was a man named Annas there. There was a man named Caiaphas there. They were all families. They would have been brother-in-law, father, father-in-law. They kept this, this, the order or the leadership in the temple within the family so they could keep it corrupt. And Peter has the audacity to look them in the eye and say, you killed them. God raised them. We're not scared of you. And they're fearless, but they're not rude. And they're fearless, but they're not flying in the face of rebellion and being inappropriate. They're telling them what they saw. They're telling them their story. So they go away. They're looking at death. Think about this. These are the same people. They can just march them up to Pontius Pilate just like they did Jesus and say, hey, we need two more crucifixions and this thing is done. We'll end it today. No one will ever say the name Jesus again and we can stop this thing right here. Peter and John would have known this. You with me? The next month is super inspirational, so hang on. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred amongst themselves. Peter and John are going, this is it. We're not going to see day again. These are the guys that killed Jesus. They're about to kill us. Here we go. This is what we were born to do. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda and any further, oh, any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back and commanded them never again to speak or teach the name of Jesus. Verse 23, as soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. When they had heard the report, all the believers lifted their voice together in prayer to God. Notice, they get threatened with their life. 
Don't preach Jesus. Don't say Jesus. His days are done. Don't preach about him. Don't talk about him. We do not see Peter and John rent some mules and book it to the desert to disappear. We don't see them go, I've done enough. I'm tired. We had barely escaped death. Whew. We don't see that. What do they do? They rally the other believers. They meet up with them. They were held overnight. What's going on? What, what happened? What did they say? Well, they said, we can't teach Jesus. So let's gather and let's pray. This is the first ever recorded prayer meeting of the first believers in Jesus. If you would have gone through what they went through, if you were one day fishing, just doing what you always did, Jesus came along and said, hey, follow me. You live the most adventurous, fulfilling, scary, provocative three years your entire life. You see the man you've been following. He says, hey, I'm going to go. And then he gets killed by the Roman Empire. He gets crucified in front of the whole nation. And then three days later, he, he's back. He's alive. He's walking through walls. And he makes you fish for breakfast on the beach. He says, hey, in a few days, I'm going to leave. And now they know he's the Savior of the world. Now they believe everything he's taught. Everything he's ever taught that ended with a period now ends with an explanation point. And they begin to think about everything that they, that they went through, and he leaves. And then the other day, they were just going to church to pray, and they heal a guy, and a crowd gathers, and people get saved. And then we get called out by the leaders, and they say, if you talk about him again, we're going to kill you. And they would have known these guys, this leadership team of the current temple or the church. And the leadership team would have known these Jesus followers. And they say, don't teach Jesus. And they don't run away. They run back to the believers. What would you pray? What would you pray for? How would you pray? How do Americans pray? Together in prayer to God. O sovereign Lord, this is their prayer. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. Look how big and majestic that is. We pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. How small. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against the Messiah. They refer back to one of David's messianic psalms, meaning it's a passage of writing in the Old Testament talking about a coming Messiah, a soon-to-be man sent to save the world. Not from Rome, but from itself. There would have been little pockets of literature that these followers would have had from the Old Testament. David wrote that a thousand years before Jesus but yet it was so accurate and so pinpoint to the situation they were in. In fact, that this happened here in our very city 
For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But check this out. But everything they did was not determined, but everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. Watch this. Here's, here's their request. So they made this big platform, their aligned heart to God, and they're ready to pray. Here's what they say. And now, keep us, protect us, watch over us and guide us, cause our portfolios to grow and our waistlines to shrink. Help me get into that specific school. Help me find a spouse. Help my husband finish the dishes. Help my wife clear off the bathroom counter. Thank you, Jesus. For this day, amen. They didn't pray that. I wonder if the reason so much small happens in America is because we pray so small. I wonder. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Check this out. This verse kicks off the New Testament. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Boldness. Verse 33, and the apostles testified powerfully. They did not testify powerfully. They need to listen to a certain radio station. They did not testify powerfully that you got to wear certain clothes. They did not testify powerfully that you have to look a certain way. They didn't even testify powerfully that you have to go to a certain church. They testified powerfully to the resurrection, to the fact that Jesus is alive and not dead. Now, I'm going to put up a pretty controversial slide that has some protesters on it. Can you put that slide up for me, Kevin? Leave it up for a minute. This, this is not bold. This is in the way. This is not bold. This is stupid. This is not bold. This is wrong. This isn't bold. When you try and save or lead your family and your friends to Jesus, and you say you're a Christian, guess what the world thinks of? They're in your way. They're in the way of you reaching your boss. They're in the way of you sharing Jesus with your neighbor. They're in your way. All the dreams you have for your kids to come back to God, 
all the dreams that you have for coworkers and bosses and teachers and students and everyone around you to encounter the love and grace and mercy and acceptance of Jesus is being twisted by these people. You know, the apostles, they didn't preach theology. It wasn't even a doctrine issue. It wasn't even a sin issue. They preached Jesus. They shared their story of who Jesus was. Going after people's theology will not work. Going after people's doctrine will not work. Going after people's belief system will not work. But when you share with them what you've seen Jesus do, that will work. And people who don't believe what you believe, and people who don't like what you like, won't lean away from Christianity. They will lean in to Christianity. And if you, for some reason, have found a comfy seat in this church, and you think that what they're doing is right, this is my invitation for you to find a new church. Because your lead pastor does not support that, what you see on your screen, at all. And you might have to bail me out of jail if I see someone like that in Idaho. <laughs> Just being honest. Who's preaching? I don't know. Our pastors are all in jail. Why? Because these protesters don't know. They know two verses in John and three verses in the book of Revelation, but they don't know Jesus. They don't know their Bible, and they have no love. And the Bible says there is no love for God if there is no love for people in you. And nothing about what they're doing says, I love you. For God so loved the world... The world is not mountains and trees and air and oceans. It's how people think. For God so loved how people think and how wrong they are that he sent his son. That whosoever would change how they think about Jesus would not perish but have everlasting life. I think the reason why Christianity was so magnetic in the first century was because when you become fearless, you become really selfless. Why? Because when you fear, what do you fear? What you're going to lose. But when you realize that everything you have, you can't lose it because it was never yours, you then stop fearing the loss of your own possessions and you begin to care about other people's soul. And that's what made first century Christians so magnetic. What made them so generous, if you keep reading this chapter, you'll see that they read that, they pray that prayer, give us boldness, and then they all look around and they go, let's put all of our, all of our stuff in a big pile. And let's make sure we all have enough to live off of. But then let's give the rest away 
let's save some for when people become Jesus followers and they have to leave their job and they have to leave their profession and they have to leave what they're doing to follow Jesus. Let's save some for them so that we can give them a car to drive and a home to live in and a coat to wear because they may lose their job to follow Jesus. I've been studying community a lot in the last six months. And in the first century, there was an actor who wasn't a Jesus follower. And back then, if you were an actor, there was no backstage. There was no computer animation. If you acted something out, you did it. And if you were an actor in the first century, it means that you would sometimes have to do some pretty deplorable stuff in front of a crowd have sex with people for acting. So there's an actor who wanted to be a Jesus follower. And, Jesus, and, and he started following Jesus, and then the group he was a part of, the group leader said, hey, uh, what you're doing is confusing our group. Because you can't do that, what you're doing, and still be a Jesus follower. Why? Because your body is a temple. And Jesus lives within your body and your soul. And so when you defile your body, you're defiling the temple. You're making separation between you and God. Once you repent, he's back there. And the guy said, okay, well, okay, I'll stop. But I need an income. I, I need money. So he then started an acting school. And the group leader said, time out. You're now you're just multiplying what you're doing. He's like, but I'm not doing it anymore. He said, but you're still making it happen. You have to quit your job completely. So they move him to a different city. They moved him to a city called Ephesus under the leadership of a man named Timothy. And Timothy said, if there isn't a group leader in this church that will take him in, I will take him in and I will feed him my food and I will give him my clothes if it means him following Jesus. That is why our movement was so magnetic. That's a real story. It really happened. They preached with such boldness and such fearlessness. If we could have the worship team come back up. wrapping up this series with one question. And next week, I'll make you laugh. It'll be great. But I really wanted you to catch what I was saying today. What will our once upon a time story be? So we wrap up this series, Tough as Nails. We've talked about the journey Jesus went through. We talked about men like William Tyndale, who to put a Bible in your lap was killed for what he believed. We talked about having faith, and faith means having confidence that a promise is going to be kept. We talked about how there were people in the Old Testament who never saw the promise fulfilled. 
and that first century believers had examples like Moses and Abraham and Enoch because they knew that God had spoken to them that something awesome was about to happen, but they died not seeing it. And the writer in Hebrews says, we're surrounded by such this great crowd of witnesses. Why are we so afraid? And then we see two Jesus followers. Jesus has gone into heaven. It's about two months after the crucifixion. Everything is still fresh in the minds of the people. And they begin to preach Jesus fearlessly to the very same people who killed Jesus. And they prayed, you know what? Lord, don't fix our economy so it's easier to preach. Give me a better job so I can preach prosperity a little bit better. Give me a little bit more experience so I can finally disciple people. They just said, God, give our story some leverage with some boldness. Let us preach with some impact and some love and some grace. Church, I'm telling you, if we can make a shift in how we show what we believe, we'll see a shift in the city but it's going to make us and force us to be tough as nails. You're going to have to be tough as nails. Because when kids and spouse and family and coworkers and bosses and classmates and teammates begin to give you grief and say that what you believe isn't true and Christianity is full of hypocrites, you just get to smile and tell them your story again. Because that's the God we serve. He doesn't need to be defended. He doesn't need to be, I don't know, made bigger in a public space so that people believe him more. We're not going to jam our doctrine and our theology and our behaviors down people's throats. It's not how God did it. God is so good. And as soon as there are people who reflect his goodness, we won't need to debate. We won't need to argue. Because they'll come asking. They'll come wondering, how did you make it through a, through a depression? How did you make it through an economic drought? How did you make it when everyone was losing their jobs? That's a big wide open door saying, preach to me. Teach me. Show me. And when you start dropping the name Jesus, and you begin to connect them with something that's bigger than themselves, it's a resource. Jesus is a resource to life and life more abundantly. Amen. Can I pray for you? Come on, let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing a worship song. If I didn't push any buttons during this series, I promise you I'll push one next week because next week I'm talking about the election. We'll see who doesn't believe in church and politics mixing by who doesn't show up. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. But on a serious note, if, if you're here, just really quick, just go ahead and just close your eyes. just want to create a personal time of just reflection and just to dig deep for you. And think about your journey and think about everything that you've been through. I want to ask you, why aren't you fearless? What is your biggest fear? Father, today, you're so good. You're so gracious. 
You're so powerful, Father. I pray that today that we as a community, Lord, that we can make a shift to not being rude, but, Lord, being fearless, to being bold, to being happy, to be generous, to learn how to forgive everybody. Not just some, but everyone in our world, we can forgive them because, God, we were in your world and you forgave us. So, Father, today we stand as free people. We don't have to be pressured by what pressures the world. We don't have to be bullied by what bullies the world. And we can step into a new way of living, a fearless way of living that causes us to give and be generous and be compassionate. Father, I thank you right now for grace right now in this moment. Some of us, this might be difficult to process or to digest. I pray this week, Lord, as they begin to reflect and ponder and meditate on some of these things, Lord, that you would be able to show them your vision for their life, who you picture them as. Father, we love you so much. You're so, so good.